Eve. Hi, welcome back to Demi Goddess, a podcast hosted by me, Demi Burnett. Today, we are doing a different episode of our show. I've been thinking a lot about how I wanted to do this and how I wanted to talk about this, and we decided it would be best if I did a solo episode. So I've gotten a lot of questions about my journey to my autism diagnosis, so I wanted to take the time to not only share my story, but also answer some of the listener questions. I really appreciate you all coming along on this journey with me, and I'm really happy I get to share my story with all of you. The main question that I get whenever it comes to my autism diagnosis is, what made you decide to look for answers? Like, what made you seek a diagnosis? And I think that it's a multitude of things. It's not just like one one thing happened and I was like, oh, I think I might be autistic. It was several different things that happened or just uh, concepts that I struggled with. So right before... I uh, first started my mental health journey and diving into all of that. I got into a fight with my friend and the fight was like so misconstrued. Like uh, I I could recognize I was saying things that weren't what I was intending to say or I was saying something and it was been being taken like the worst possible way. So I realized that my intent was just not being understood at all. And I knew that something wasn't right there. I kept having like misunderstandings with everyone all the time about everything. Um, As simple as uh, like me answering a question and somebody taking my tone as rude when I was not trying to be rude at all to people thinking that I didn't care about them when I did care about them so much. So it felt like something was off. Like, how how are people not understanding what I mean and why, why are they perceiving it so differently than what I intend? I also was seeking some answers because I had so much trouble being an adult, as in, like, adulting. As I got into adulthood, I really could not grasp and manage the things that I saw the other new and upcoming adults in my life doing. Like my friends, I, I saw them just doing adulting and having no qualms with it or like having qualms, but just kind of bitching about it, complaining about it. Not like, oh, my God, I can't do it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm avoiding it at all costs. And I'm really barely staying afloat right now because I cannot do this adulting thing. I don't know what to do about it. I uh, I was just struggling a lot more than any of my friends were. And even when I would put in so much of my energy, 100 percent of it into adulting. It was causing me so much, so much stress because it was just, I don't know, so many things I just, I don't know how to do. I don't know how to cope with. Also, more into the adulting thing is how it led into like my financials. So I came off of the show and the Bachelor franchise, my time with it, afforded me with a nice financial cushion that I could not maintain. So like I just blow through money. I I would just get it and it would just disappear. And it's not that I was buying insane stuff for myself. I, uh, I give my money away like crazy. Like anyone who knows me knows that I would just be like, I'll pay for everything. Um, it's very, I, 
I don't know. I like to share it. You know, I donated so much to so many random charities, anything online I would click on and donate. Like the, it wasn't like I was using it all for myself. It would just go anywhere I could spend it. It was so strange. And I like a lot of it also I can attribute to alcohol and like being impulsive from like drunken purchases. But even once I stopped drinking, I was still not dealing with any of the money things, the financial things and um, avoiding it at all costs and having meltdowns over it because I just can't can't do it. So the alcohol, too, um, that was like my biggest struggle was I just wanted to quit drinking. And once I did. I thought all my problems were going to go away and I was going to feel like a happy, normal person and everything was going to be fine. But um, I felt the exact same. I just didn't feel physically ill. So um, all of those things about myself led me to start searching for an answer. It had been six months since I'd stopped drinking and like I had a lot of clarity. I there was actually a comment once where someone speculated that I was autistic. And I know that people really um, take an issue with other people diagnosing themselves or others. But for me, personally, it was extremely validating. It was the first time I had ever Uh, heard anyone else say that like I had thought that before but whenever I said it out loud I felt really stupid and I like wished I hadn't said it because I was made to feel so stupid about it um so they they were the first person to ever validate me in that thought make me not feel stupid I mean I really don't know how much longer that it would have taken for me to figure it out if I hadn't had seen that comment because it, that comment kind of jump-started me. It also jump-started me into a conversation with that person. And they kind of explained to me more why they thought that. And I really appreciated it. Whenever this person made this comment and like validated this thought of me being autistic, it spiraled me into this clarity of back in college I had realized, so like eight years ago, I had realized then I suspected I was autistic. And this was way before any of like TikTok or anything. This was back when um, a lot less people knew about the modern research in autism. So it was just shut down. That thought, that idea, (laughs) that comment was completely rejected by everyone I knew. So... It led to a lot of my mental health plummeting after that because it led to a lot of alcohol abuse and just confusion of me. um, You know, I I thought I'd figured it out. And then it was like I was made to feel like I didn't know what I was talking about. So then I I just kind of started to hate myself for a lot of reasons. Uh, Just thinking that you're a bad person or that you're like a lazy person or that you're a person who wants something to be wrong with them or whatever, all of the things that people will say. Um, It's really hard to um, want to live with yourself whenever you feel like you're, you're like that and you don't know why. So having a label for it helps so much for me because then I knew what I understood. I understood what was going on. So people that could say, like, I don't need a label. You don't need to label all this stuff, blah, blah. 
Well, those labels can actually be so helpful because then I know what kind of therapy I need. You know, I know how my brain is working now. So considering all of that information, all of that is what led me to getting my diagnosis. It was a multitude of things. Um, And so more deep into this is where we're going to go next. (laughs) I'm going to do some listener questions and explain my journey even further. And also thank you so much to everyone who sent out DMs. Um, It was really fun to go through them and all of your answers were appreciated. I mean questions. All of your questions were appreciated. I hope you appreciate my answers. Okay, so the first question is, how was school growing up? So in elementary school, my best friend growing up was uh, minimally verbal autistic, and he had an aide, and I sat with him every year. His parents had him in my class, and he had to be sitting with me, Um, and he always had his aide. So his aide was not only helping him, but she was secretly helping me too. Or I guess not secretly, but um, unknowingly helping me as well just by chatting with me and me asking questions. And yeah, she was wonderful. I was a very good student and I was always really good friends with the teachers. And I didn't know it then. But now looking back, I can see that it was very socially manipulative of me, um, I was always really, really good and I did everything right. And I looked like a suck up because I was with the teacher. But really, that was just like my survival skills were like, uh, be good and then you don't get in trouble. Um, so I was socially manipulative to get on the good side of the authority. So that way the authority wasn't telling me what to do. And I was friends with the authority. I was friends with the teachers. So that way, yeah, they weren't treating me like lesser than them and like a student. But I didn't know that's what I was doing subconsciously. But I was. I was socially manipulative at that age with good intent. But I was, you know, the bubbly, sweet, smiling. It's manipulation for social acceptance. It's part of the mask. All right. Now, number two. Next, I'm looking into getting tested for the same type of diagnosis and ADHD. I would love to know all the tips and what to look for in the first intake. Well, the first intake is very long. Uh, It's usually multiple sessions. I can't remember how many sessions I have, but they were multiple hours each time. They ask a lot of questions. They asked a lot from the people around me. So my parents, uh, I had to get some question answered for a parent interview portion of the evaluation, asking about questions from ages zero to three. That's really important. The early developmental years, you need to have information on that or you need to have someone who can provide that information. You need to have a witness. (laughs) You need to have a witness. Also, Uh, Your other witness that you need is someone who knows you now, someone like your bestie, 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 someone you think could advocate for you, you know, someone you trust to do that Uh, because they had 
they asked me for my friend to do a questionnaire thing and I didn't see it. So I don't know what she answered. And I told her I didn't want to know because I wanted it to be authentic and genuine and yada, yada. But that did um, help in me getting my diagnosis. It was part of it. So you need a friend. You need two witnesses. You need someone who knew you as as a baby and someone who is around your age or not around your age necessarily, just someone who knows you really well now. And also something important to remember is that not to get discouraged if you get a misdiagnosis because that happened to me. So just get another evaluation if you can. And if you can't, um, self-diagnosis is always widely accepted in the autistic community because you know how difficult it can be to get a diagnosis. Um, But if you do get a misdiagnosis, don't get discouraged. It happens a lot. Um, I had to get a second evaluation because my first evaluation, uh, they diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder and social communication disorder, which is basically autism. Um, Hardly anyone even diagnoses that anymore because it's the same thing as autism minus repetition and routine. But my repetition and routine is demand avoidance. Um, So it's just not as obvious. But again, this is all modern research. Um, That's the neuropsychologist did not know better, but I went to one who did know better. And so the one who did know better said, oh, yes, you're autistic. And I said, hey, I heard about this thing, PDA profile. And she said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And here's a bunch more information on it. So if that man would have known about PDA, (laughs) he could have saved me some time and thousands of dollars. But that's like the importance of why these professionals in the mental health care industry need a revamp to their education. All right. Question three. How did you get help finding the right neuropsychologist? I literally Googled female neuropsychologist near me, and then I researched their background to make sure that I would be comfortable with them. And um, yeah, that that's what I did. And it was a woman, and it just so happened to be a woman who's been... Um, Her main research has been in autism in women for the past five years. She's been specializing in it. So that was a super bonus for me. And I I really lucked out on the perfect neuropsychologist the second time. Um, But I have not yet found the right therapist. And that is so frustrating because I know there's a lot of therapists out there and I know that they want to help so badly, but unfortunately they just don't have the information I need them to know because PDA is so under-researched. So I have been having to go to extreme lengths to find the right therapist. And I've had some other therapists and other my neuropsychologists actually help me to provide some resources. So important that if you are struggling to find a right therapist, don't settle. Um, Ask for help from someone else or uh, do what I'm doing and just keep on researching and calling, leaving voicemails, asking them, hey, are you willing to work with an autistic adult newly diagnosed? Because that is what I need. Yeah, if the answer is no, keep moving on, ask another one. But the neuropsychologist, it literally came down to me Googling it. And uh, a lot of neuropsychologists, so even if they are not located near you, they're doing Zoom. So it doesn't matter where they're located. You could, well, I don't know how insurance works, but (laughs) adulting. 
But um, yeah, they do Zoom. But a lot of the time the insurance isn't going to cover it anyway because they don't cover adult diagnoses. Or if they do, it would be covered through a neuropsychologist that you don't get to choose. So you don't know if they know the right information. It gets really messy. So it gets messy here. And then unfortunately, um, a lot of the time insurance doesn't end up covering it because or if they like I said, if they do, it's someone who's not going to give you the correct diagnosis. And unfortunately for me, it did cost a lot of money, which is part of the reason there's such an issue with how it's diagnosed in children, because it's less diagnosed in girls and BIPOC children. They're missing it. They're missing these diagnoses in children and not anyone who's a not white male child. And so then we have to go on as adults and pay for this diagnosis after we've struggled our whole lives. And then we have to go on and pay for this diagnosis that we could have got covered by insurance as a kid. And not only that, but we could have also lived a life that was um, better for us, a better quality of life for ourselves, knowing how our brains work. On to number four. How did autism and not knowing you had it influence your time and people's perception of you when you were on The Bachelor and BIP? So I was really aloof to my behavior upsetting people because um, whenever I would do something, production just thought it was funny. So I thought it was funny, too. And I wasn't noticing that everyone else was mad. I thought that if... If nobody was telling me they were mad, then surely they weren't mad. But that wasn't the case. Um, I didn't realize, like, whenever I made, tra- whenever, you know, what, ha- oh, do you know what you did to Tracy? I literally had no idea and she was crying. Like, I made someone cry and I didn't know. That was so sad. And um, then on, whenever I watch BIP back, I can see the PDA coming out <laughs> in the worst way. Um... On the first night of BIP7, the first rose ceremony, I did not know where my rose was coming from. And so I had I, I was not feeling safe at all. And I did not like that. So I was resorting to threatening language. And I was saying, it's it's on the episode, guys. I was saying I will literally light this place on fire. <laughs> what? Like everyone's like, oh my God, that's just demi. Like, guys, that is a threat. That was a threat because of what? Because I was going to go home. Yeah, you can watch. You can go back and you can watch anytime my autonomy is threatened. My freedom from external control is threatened. It, you can you can see me starting to squirm. Definitely. And that's whenever some things like that are going to come out. OK, so number five. This person asked, do you think you could have done The Bachelor sober? They said they are a fellow autist, and one of the reasons they are fascinated with the show is how the contestants are holding it together-ish in such an unpredictable environment. They said they have a meltdown if someone wakes them up from a nap. (laughs) Honestly, everyone's just pretending to hold it together. (laughs) Uh, No one wants to look bad on TV. But I am someone who wasn't allowed to have meltdowns. Um, You know, be a good girl to me. So I internalize everything, and I still do as an adult. Now I definitely uh, externalize it. I, I'm healthier with it. I could have done The Bachelor sober, but I don't think that I would have had the same results because 
of the alcohol helping my anxiety so much. I was I was essentially self-medicating my anxiety with alcohol. So I was able to be my true self and production liked my true self because I was more uh, controversial and um, aloof. Like I didn't know that I was making everyone mad. I was rubbing people the wrong way. So uh, the alcohol it made me more aloof and made me not know I was rubbing people the wrong way even more. And yeah, without it, I think I just would have been a little more reserved. Not as fun. Or you know what? I say that. I could have just been the same. Who knows? All right. Next question. How has the diagnosis changed your views on dating, if any? This person fears people will treat them differently as a romantic partner after a diagnosis. They will. I mean, if they don't, then they're a good person to consider dating, actually. But I definitely think people will look at you different. I think people will look at me different. I think that my options have sadly declined, but I don't care because I'm not worried about that right now. Like, I'm not worried about dating so much as I'm just trying to be happy with myself. But uh, I think it's a really, really big problem. And that's a problem I have with Love on the Spectrum is like, that, that show does not make you want to date an autistic person. It infantilizes them. And these are adult human beings. I definitely don't like that show. So, yeah, if people people are going to probably change uh, the way that they treat you, but like screw those people. There are people that won't. There are people that will try to understand you and like will respect you and care to get to know you even if you think that there's not there are I thought that there wasn't there's there really are people that are that will be there for you and um also I'm sure that in the autistic community there's like uh, so many people to date so maybe I should start trying to date a fellow autistic person I don't know we'll see (laughs) but I'm not I'm not trying to date right now if it happened to happen, if like something were to come up, it would come up. I mean, I'd, I'd let it happen. I don't know. I don't know people. Okay. <laughs> but I did the bachelor trying to be a relationship person. But before that I did my own thing. And so like, I'm back to that. I'm back to just like being single, being on my own. And I know that people are probably going to ask about this. So like whenever it comes to Christian, she was the best partner that I've ever had um, I didn't realize at the time that I had avoidant tendencies that um, that's the name for the, that thing. That feeling is avoidant. It's called avoidant attachment. Um, if I knew what I knew now and if I knew what I knew about attachment styles and about myself and my brain, uh, I had, things could have been different possibly. How have you learned to unmask and what has that journey been like? This question came from someone who is getting diagnosed now and can't tell the difference between them and their masking self. I don't know either. I don't know when I'm not masking and when I am. Like, I I truly don't know if I'm masking right now or not. (laughs) Oh, God. Um... But, like, I think that there's several different types of masking and some... One of the types of masking that I think is the bad masking is whenever I silence myself or if I'm just agreeable to avoid contact or or avoid conflict or if I am being a people pleaser. I think that that is the bad masking because it's kind of out of fear 
of what other people are going to say and think or out of fear of rejection. I was really struggling with it for a while, but what I've noticed is whenever I think I think that I'm not masking is whenever I'm with people I'm really comfortable with and then I can be myself because like I know that there's nothing I could say or do that's going to like screw up screw up the friendship or like there's no way that they're going to misunderstand me because they would never assume that I would have that bad intent in the first place. So that is what I've made a priority is surrounding myself with people that are empowering my true self who encourage me to, hey, Demi, did you make sure you get your headphones before you leave the house? Hey, um, I made sure and, um, you know, found us a table that was uh, in the dark corner so that way the lights wouldn't bother you. Just like little things like that. And there are people that will be that way and they're incredible. So, yeah, keep looking. And also with the masking thing, like, I, I really think it's whenever you just don't feel like you have to be walking on eggshells, too. That's like unmasked. And then this next question is, do you have any books by authors or therapists you recommend for someone who is looking for a diagnosis. There's Asper Girls by Rudy, Rudy Simon. I love this book. This was the first book I read after my diagnosis. And it feels like you're reading a book about yourself. And it's like, um, it's a book. It's, it's really great for any woman, parent, or teacher, or um, an autistic girl, or a woman, parent, or teacher of an autistic girl. It puts feelings into words for you. I saw myself in that book a lot, and I saw myself in ways that I never knew how to describe. And I never realized that um, it was a unique experience to autistic girls or people. So... Yeah, that was validating. Another recommendation, if you have a PDA profile, if you suspect that you do or you suspect you know someone that does, there's an easy book to read called Can I Tell You About Pathological Demand Avoidance? I got it on Amazon. It's been incredibly helpful. And it's kind of, uh, it has like pictures and stuff. Like it's like a, a children's book-ish but also feels mature enough that an adult wouldn't laugh in your face about it. So that book I really like for explaining it. So Asper Girls and Can I Tell You About Pathological Demand Avoidance. There are so many more books out there. Another one is Neurotribes. Um, there's a book by Sarah Gibbs called Drama Queen. That one's good. If anyone's ever called you dramatic, read that book. So to wrap this section up, the biggest thing that I needed through this journey was validation. And um, if you're on this journey, too, or if you're wondering if you might be autistic or neurodivergent at all or whatever you're feeling, listen to yourself. Trust yourself. Don't. Tell someone else and give them the power over what you're going to think about yourself. Trust yourself. You, you know yourself better than anyone else does. Better than your friends, better than your family, better than the professionals. You know yourself. 
and you might have just forgot. So figure out who you are again and listen to whatever your brain is telling you and get to the core of it. And don't let people stop you. Don't let people make you feel any type of way about it. Just don't respond to them. If they aren't helpful, don't respond. You need to focus on you. It's not selfish because at the end of it, you're going to come out not only treating yourself better, but treating other people better. So that's that. Thank you for listening to this episode and coming along with me on this journey. Once again, I really appreciate all of the questions. I love talking to you guys. I love that back and forth. As always, I want to hear from my listeners. So email demigoddesspod at gmail.com with any questions and you may hear your question on the podcast. Follow me at Demi Not Lovato on Instagram. That's at Demi underscore not underscore Lovato and at Demlia on TikTok at D-E-M-L-I-A. And follow at Demi Goddess Pod on TikTok and Instagram. You can also watch all Demi Goddess episodes on our Demi Goddess Podcast YouTube channel. That's right. We have our own YouTube page now. Or listen on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Demigoddess is part of the Eve Podcast Network and a Forever Dog production. Executive producer, Tracy Soren. Development executive, Mariah Nicholas. Engineer and editor, Sebastian Portuendo. Theme music, Gabe Lopez. Cover photo by Stephanie Sayers. Forever Dog Productions is Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Bowen.